I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Cup Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the roguish Jeff Goad. Well, hello there. And today, we have a very special guest, David Hoskins, artist and graphic designer. Hey. Tell us a little bit about your um, relationship with uh, gaming and Appendix N in particular. Um, well, gaming, probably been, I've been gaming about half my life since I was about uh, you know, 12, 13, like most of you guys, I assume. Um, started off with second edition and uh, worked my way through World of Darkness and um, took a bit of a break in third, tried fourth, didn't like it. And then with uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics um, and its focus on Appendix N sort of pulling me back into it, um, that got me back into gaming pretty seriously. Uh, and then as far as Appendix N goes, um, a lot of Lovecraft and um, Fritz Leiber and Robert E. Howard and uh, some Tolkien, but then, you know, not much a- after that until recently where I've started going through like you guys and reading a lot of the stuff uh, that brought on that inspiration uh, for Gary to do Appendix N. As you've been recently going through and kind of delving deeper into the Appendix N, is there a specific author or novel or collection of stories you've read that just really excited you? Um, well, the all the Jack Vance stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I had read uh, The Dying Earth uh, a long time ago. It's just one of those ones I randomly was lucky enough to find and picked up. And then uh, Eyes of the Overworld, um, I had read... I picked that one up probably in college and read it real quick and then picked it up again for, uh, for this episode. And I just enjoyed it immensely. Um, other than that, uh, I've really enjoyed discovering, uh, Michael Moorcock getting mm, into the yes. Elric stuff. Um, yeah. I never read that before and it I hadn't is, either. Yeah. I mean, it is just killer. Um, uh-huh. I know a lot of people get a little gripey about the like angstiness of Elric, but I love it. So I'm um, completely with you on yeah. that. And based on what little I've seen of your artwork so far, it seems like a, a perfect fit, you know, the Elric and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, your art. So. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> so. And for those listening who aren't familiar with David Hoskins' work, there's one item in particular I would really like to plug for him, which is a, a zine called Summoning Sickness. And it's almost kind of not fair to call it a zine because it is so beautifully constructed. Uh, oh, but it's thanks. this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if I if I'm correct, all of the art is yours and all of the writing is yours as well, right? All, all, yeah, all the art and all the writing. Um, in the back of the book, I do reference um, some things I pulled from, like with uh, the lycanthropy section, uh, I borrowed pretty heavily from the White Wolf, uh, the stages of metamorphosis, um, and uh, some stuff from like Lesser Key of Solomon and um, yeah, Encyclopedia of uh, Witchcraft and Demonology. Um, some uh, other books that I had on hand. And uh, a lot of the stories are uh, fact ba- factual based, like names, dates, locations, and stuff. Uh, but then I would take certain aspects from multiple stories and mash them up and make them my own thing because um, there's not a lot of... Uh, when you get down to the, to the meat and potatoes and like the true uh, history of the whole thing, it's not all that interesting when you actually get into it. At least not in a fantastical way. It's it's interesting in a historical aspect, but 
a lot of it is uh, just people being persecuted and not treated very well because they were different in some way, shape or form. So sure. Absolutely. So to pull it sort of back to, to heavier fiction, I guess, by taking elements from different actual events and creating fiction from it. Well, it sounds like a work for our times in any case. So, yeah. So summoning sickness is certainly a uh, beautiful, a beautiful uh, relic, beautiful object. Uh, can you tell our listeners what actually the content is? Is it, is it a, it's a gaming resource? I describe it as like an illustrative, uh, an illustrated encyclopedia style book on uh, a little bit of folklore, occult, uh, witchcraft, and, uh, you know, just good, good old fashioned monster stuff. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, folks, check it out. So if they do want to check your stuff out, is there a good way for them to find your stuff? Uh, I mean, my website, davidhoskins.com, uh, H-O-S-K-I-N-S. Um, most of it's all going to be there. It's sort of going through a bit of a revamp, but by the time this airs, it should be all good to go. Perfect. All right. So this episode is Jack Vance's Eyes of the Overworld. Uh, Hoy, why don't you tell us about the really gorgeous copy that you've got in your hands? Yes, I've got the Ace first printing, a dumpster find, a Chinatown dumpster oh my find. God. So yes, and that's <laughs> the one David's got too. <laughs> yep, good one. Yep. yep, with the uh, gorgeous Jack Gogan cover with the um, infamous uh, penis mushrooms, <laughs> <laughs> and the back cover copy is the Eyes of the Overworld in the dim far future of Earth when the sun had shrunk to a small red disk in the dark sky and the race of man lived in isolated cities that echoed with the vastness of the world's history, science, myth, and magic had become one. Sorcerers who re read the books of ancient times held great power and fearsome monsters created in ages long forgotten stalked the land. In this world of mystery and danger, the adventurer known as Kujo the Clever was forced to undertake a quest for Yukonu the Laughing Magician, a quest that was to take him to a land stranger than any he had dreamed of and pit his wits and his sword against powers from beyond time itself. In this long-awaited new novel of the dying earth, Jack Vance has written a tale that you will want to read again and again, for its marvels are unending. Very cool. The cover that I have, I have the 1977 paperback, and this one, if there was no Jack Gogan cover, I think this would be a pretty amazing cover, and we'd be very happy with it in general. But compared to the Jack Gogan cover, this one definitely is not the winner. Right. Uh, but it's still a very cool cover. Uh, we've got um, Magnets, the demon, rising out from the lake, and uh, Kugel is falling out of the boat, and uh, Marlinka is uh, is uh, just, I guess, just about to drown. Right, this is right, shortly right. before she drowns. <laughs> Bye, Marlinka. In, in her shift that she's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, in her little see-through shift. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you've also got another copy here right. with us. My actual reading copy is this uh, complete Dying Earth hardcover science fiction book club with a Brahm cover. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also comes with a really lovely poster of the Brahm cover. I was lucky enough to find it. So I guess maybe if you're lucky and you score a copy of this book, it's the same same as the uh, front cover. Yeah, you can, find, you can still find that around. Um, and I'll say it's so much prettier than the... Uh, complete tales or whatever with like that weird space station. Yeah. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Cover. It's ugly as hell. Yeah. It doesn't even tell you anything about the story, right? It's just, this one's nice. So, and it makes it look like it's hard science fiction when it really isn't. No, not at all. So in fact, I think Jack Vance is ill served by most of his cover art that's currently available. So, you know, that's just. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So maybe there's, maybe there's a commission in there for you somewhere there, David. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So maybe before when, we move on maybe to when DCC, uh, maybe when DCC Dying Earth 
There you go. Takes off. Uh, Joseph can give me a call. Yes, go. perfect. <laughs> Are you listening, Joe? <laughs> okay, so before we head on over to the library, we are going to look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Periapt. Periapt. And when I was trying to find our Hygaxian word of the day, Jack Vance, is his language is so dense. Yeah. And what I do, as listeners of this show know, I get these gorgeous... Uh, vintage paperbacks, and then I deface them. I highlight them. I underline in them. It's really criminal what I do to these things. And one of the things that I do is as I'm going through these stories, I'm highlighting and underlining the the words that come up that are, you know, kind of not normally found in fiction that feel kind of specific to kind of this specific style of writing. And going through the Jack Vance novel, I started underlining words. And just on the first three pages, I underlined Mance, Couplas, uh, pertinacious, coving, vicissitudes, periaps, inducements, remonstrate, activans, curioso, librums, poissances, and muni- uh, munificent. So after th- you can really choose a third of the book. <laughs> exactly. For right. Anything that's not, uh, you know, anything that's not a conjunction, you could probably. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So after three pages, I said to myself, Jeff, you don't need to underline anything else. Just in these first three pages, you have plenty to choose from. There you go. So I chose periapt and periapt is an item that is worn as a charm or an amulet. And the reason why I chose it is it's, 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 a, it's a strange word. It's an uncommon word, but it's also a word that I have never seen outside of the realm of fantasy role playing. Right. Periapt of healing or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's clearly a word that that fits in this world, and I'm pretty sure that Gygax. Um, I'm pretty sure we have Gygax to thank for it being part of our fantasy role playing sure. vernacular. Yeah, he would definitely like the the, the Hygaxian. <laughs> so. Yes. So heading over into the library, let's talk a little bit about this book. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I did not get to do a close rereading for this episode, but. Um, I, you know, I love this book. It's just, um, it's, it's where the, one of the mainstreams of where the D and D thief comes from, but with all the, with all the extracurricular things that the thief can do, like read magic and, and use scrolls and mm. what have you. Hide in shadows. Hide in shadows. Um, you know, this humor, there's the fact that Kujo is, he, he's, if you start reading closely, you realize he's really a horrible person, right? Oh, he's <laughs> terrible. Oh, he is terrible. <laughs> He is the absolute worst. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that's that's the thing about Vance's language is that, especially in, in these books where you've got this, um, the dying earth, right? So the sun's going out. Uh, it's it's a very bleak and, bleak and dark place, but everybody has this language where they're very uh, witty and almost mm-hmm. polite and very formal, even when they're about yes. to stab you. Why have you and, chosen and, to and slay me? Is, and that is Google. <laughs> Yeah, and and that is and and that is him, like in a nutshell. You know, that's what makes him, uh, I think, able to do these terrible things. But he's still likable, is because he's still kind of got this uh, this pompous, like, just uh, very wordy way about mm-hmm. him. You know, he's uh, he's he's quick to screw you over and quick to cry foul when he feels wrong, uh, wronged, and. Uh, yeah, he's like he's a total right. sociopath. Think, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I think the stories would be unbearable if he didn't always end up somehow worse off, even though he did all these terrible things to everybody else. <laughs> it, it, he's never as worse off as the people that no, he left that's behind. That's true. Right. He just never. He's just constantly treading water while everybody else is right. burning. Like 
in the in the boat. That's a really good. Uh, that's a really good analogy there, because yeah, now that I think about it, have you guys seen Twenty Eight Weeks Later, the sequel to Twenty Eight Days Later? I have not. No. Oh, God. Well, there's this whole opening sequence where there's this one character who like the zombies are coming, but in order for him to escape, he's like pushing like women and children out of the way. And like he hops into this rowboat and like ends up like knocking the person who's in the rowboat out of the rowboat to get into the rowboat. And then he starts like quickly canoeing away. And like clearly like you're supposed to hate this guy, but also like if you're going to survive, like sometimes like that's what you have to do. And I'm not saying this justifies any of this, but the world that they live in is a very different kind of world. And absolutely the, the characters that Kugel encounters, he often, like, sometimes he just flat out murders them and their, their lives end. But also it is a dog eat dog world that he's living in. Cause also he's constantly being pulled into these situations where like, suddenly he is being held captive on top of this like tiny little spire where he's going to spend the rest of his life looking out for a demon that may or may not rise from the sea or he's kidnapped and pulled into a cave where he is like chained until he can either find a few, uh, find a few people or like get eaten himself. Right. Right. I always like to put forward. I mean, people have heard me a couple times on this podcast say something is very Looney Tunes. This one in particular feels like almost like a Daffy Duck cartoon. You know, he's, he, you know, bounces back from some sort of craziness. You know, he, he always survives. As you say, he ends up somehow worse off than when he started, but everyone else ends up even worse off. So that's, yeah. that's what it feels like to me. Or maybe Wiley Coyote, somewhere in between, you know, a Daffy Duck, Wiley Coyote kind of type. You know, he's smarter than the people around him, but not smart enough to get out of his own way. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. And, you know, he keeps getting these curses that he keeps dodging, but it makes me wonder how much he's really dodged these curses because... <laughs> that is my favorite. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts <laughs> of this book is when he runs into the ghost and the ghost... Uh, he has to take down the the structure that the ghost is uh, mm-hmm. bound to. And uh, if he doesn't, the ghost is going to curse him with this never ending <laughs> tedium that the ghost has to suffer from. So he's like, Oh God. So he's, so he decides he's just going to do whatever he's going to leave. And there are bandits outside waiting for him. And so he, uh, he goes out, he dispatches the bandits, but the last one curses him with an immediate and cankerous death. <laughs> and so he's, he kind of, the, the quote, one must use his wits in dealing with maledictions. <laughs> and he starts he starts going over in his mind how these two curses counteract each other because he can't have an immediate death if he has to live co- in constant tedium. And then he's got this cankerous part, but he's got this parasite hooked into him. Or not, not really a parasite. I guess it is kind of a parasite um, hooked into him. And that's the that's the cankerous bit of the curse. So he's like, okay, it's a wash. And then he just walks away. Um, and it's, and it, I've never seen anybody deal with a, a curse yeah, that well. It's hilarious. I mean, it's practically Jesuitical. Right. Pra- <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. second time he deals with a big curse is after what I think is actually his worst action. The moment where he's walking along the beach and he finds these like kind of fairy like creatures who are living within these clamshells and they're these very kind of like innocent kind of giggling kind of mischievous little creatures. And he manages to like earn their trust enough so that he can get close to them. And then they start being playful. And one of them like weaves him a jacket and they're like, Oh, put this on. It'll keep you nice and warm. And they like weave it out of the ocean. And then he puts it on and like instantly just turns to water and he's soaked. And they all start giggling and they close their clamshells, but he's furious. So like he grabbed a big rock and starts smashing the clamshell of the one who did it, rips the ferry out of the clamshell and throws it onto the beach. But like now the thing is basically dead. So it's laying on the beach saying like, why have you killed me? 
Um, and he's like, well, you played this mean prank on me. Like, but it was just a prank. Well, now you won't do it again. But it curses him with, um, <laughs> with um, what do you say? By the end of the day, your your one you will lose you will like lose your whatever your, your, heart's, your heart's desire, desire like the thing you want most the thing you want most will like yeah not and what's so funny is he spends the whole next rest of this part of the story trying to convince whoever himself and the world trying to convince that his heart's himself, desire yeah. is to like rule this little kingdom and it totally isn't uh <laughs> his heart's desire is to get back to almary so he can get his revenge on ayukono the the laughing magician uh, we're all going to be saying all these names totally differently throughout the episode, by the way. Um, and yeah. uh, so ultimately, like, that's the thing that's ripped from him. But I think it was really funny that he's like walking around, like trying to convince himself in the world that like, oh, well, actually, my heart's desire is this other thing. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, like at the end of the book where jump into the end where he gets he basically starts off where the book <laughs> begins almost, uh, you know, like did. Uh, did that ghost curse stick right. mm-hmm. you know like like did like obviously he didn't get an instantaneous and cankerous death but like you know maybe 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 some of them are more potent or whatever and and you got to think like does it do these things still come back around and he also never really gets his heart's desire right like mm-hmm. that all gets Absolutely. yanked from him I think having to repeat the same journey over and over again is certainly everlasting tedium and never getting to the place you want to go is certainly having your heart's desire taken away. So there's a very good chance that he didn't actually talk himself out of either of those curses. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I mean, as far as, as, uh, and then you go back to the, the cankerous bit, I've never read uh Kugel saga, so I don't know how his story wraps up. Like that's next on my list. Now that I've had the nice reread of this one and it's, it's fresh. very similar. Um, so I don't, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know where about, uh, where about it ends, but, um, it would be pretty fitting if he did end with a, with some sort of a cankerous death, because then it all be full circle. <laughs> you had um, mentioned that you had read this back in comic, uh, college and you kind of had rushed through it. And so yeah. w- were you able to take your time yeah, yeah. reading it this time? Into, or? Oh yeah. Yeah. I took a, I took a long time and I even, I took some notes while I was reading it and really, you know, I got, I got into it. As slim as it is, it's like what 150 pages. Really does require yeah, that you read it in sort of yeah. a very leisurely way. It's almost like sipping a good whiskey or something like that, as opposed yeah. to you know chugging a beer down. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, our copy is 189 pages. Right. If we both yeah, have mine's the ace, 190, um, so it's about the same paperback. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's about the same. Um, but uh, another thing about this book in particular is, I mean, it's it's a total banger. I, within the first 60 pages, he like there's, there's really not a lot of dead time in it. He, he gets caught stealing from this like powerful magician, a parasite thrust into him. He's tossed across the world. He like find, he gets this magical item that lets him see into the overworld. He like almost gains control of a kingdom and loses it. And that's all within 60 pages. It is just nonstop. Uh, I mean, if you're reading Fellowship of the Ring, I don't even think no, in 60 pages you're yeah. out of the Shire. Yeah, maybe like or halfway to the, you know, the, the Prancing Pony, but yeah. Yeah, that's really a good point. Yeah, this, yeah. This, the story really does move at a clip. And I really appreciate that like he doesn't spend too much time um, obsessing over the little, the little details and leave some of those things up to our imagination. Like, for example, Ferks. Ferks is this little like fuzzy white creature that's covered in like barbs and hooks. And this is the thing that Ayukono like thrusts into Kugel 
to keep him on his mission. And whenever Kugel's not really following his mission, like Firk's like like squeezes on his liver with his barbs. But the thing we is, we should actually go over what the mission is. Uh, we have, actually haven't mentioned the whole eyes of the overworld and why he's sent out. That's a good point. So, you know, he uh, is caught stealing from this magician and the magician basically summons this demon to like shoot him across the other end of the, the continent uh, where there are these uh, these basically these like ruby red contacts, these magical contacts that he wants to have um, that he wants to have. So he needs uh, Kugel to go get them and bring them to him. And we can discuss what they do in a little bit. But um, so Firks keeps him on his mission. But one of the things that I love is it is never explained how this like fuzzy white creature has been thrust inside of Kugel. It's never really explained what it looks like or <laughs> what the experience of having that because nobody else notices this thing or sees this thing. Right. And I like that he doesn't like really bother to like he just like you, you, he leaves it to us to just kind of make it work, work in our own minds. Right. It had a little when I was reading it, it definitely had some body horror elements, but it's so light in the language yeah. that you don't necessarily think, right that you don't necessarily think of it that way it's like oh it's just like a little like you know uh stomach ache or something like that but you know like <laughs> oh when you think about it, it's like oh wait it's some intelligent I, uh, parasite. I live in florida and i don't like know if you guys have been to places that have uh like spanish moss or like air plants mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. um it reminded me of like a ball of air plant but white with barbs <laughs> and like little hooks and stuff at the end of all those like uh, little dangly tentacle things. And, um, and uh, yeah, like when he puts it on, like I went through parts of the book where I kind of imagined it being inside of him, mm-hmm. And then also like kind of clamped on the outside mm-hmm. uh, with the tendrils going in and just like raking his organs to keep him in line. Yeah. And I definitely, between Hoy and I, I tend to be the far nitpickier one of the two of us. And my only nit to pick with Eyes of the Overworld is Firx's presence is constantly being um, being thrust upon Kugel for the first half of the novel. And then for the second half, it's as though Jack Vance forgot Firx was there. <laughs> it, suddenly, like, Firx isn't bothering him about anything anymore until we get back to Ayukono, the Laughing Magician, and we're dealing with that storyline. But he does seem to just disappear for half of the story. I don't know. I, f- I felt he was present. Like there were, I think in, in pretty much every section, there was a time or two where uh, Firx uh, stirs and gives him a, a jab. So it, it wants to get back to its its tank with its with its pair. And uh, there are certainly some things that Google's doing where if I was that thing, I would be like, what are you like? Just dig in there and really give him a good jab and get him <laughs> on track. Um, if I had to nitpick anything, uh, it would be the fourth section uh, with Fersum where totality is uh, formed and, and Kugel hits it. <laughs> I <and> love that. <laughs> now, it's, it, it's a really enjoying read, but it doesn't really advance anything because like he, he essentially ends up right, where where he was at the beginning of the chapter, he's just pissed off another wizard, right? <laughs> um, and like he he ends up getting thrust back in time a million years. And there's, uh, I, I feel that there's a lot of opportunity for something maybe he could have done back then, and then he comes back, uh, he, he returns back to current time, and maybe there's uh, something changed or. I don't know. Like I, I kind of felt that it it was it was fun. It was it was fun to read. Um, but it didn't really, to me, it didn't really fit in the whole, in the whole right. grand scheme of I things. I think you're onto something there, David. I think that um, 
Jack Vance, it's certainly in the Dying Earth books, I think is not as plot oriented. And so he's he's kind of like amusing yeah. himself with these sort of vignettes. And then it's like, oh, well, this was amusing and it's it's well done. I'm just going to leave it in here, even though it's not quite, you know, moving the the plot forward, so to speak. I think that a lot of times you can almost feel like the glee he has as a typewriter when oh, he's like sure. writing a certain scene or a story or using a a particular turn of phrase or something like that. And when you read the first the first collection of stories, The Dying Earth, the characters definitely have mm-hmm. story arcs. You know, to say to say and yeah. these are characters who like go through a process and they're different by the end of their story. Part of what's kind of great about Kugel, he learns nothing. He learns nothing. His <laughs> character arc is that he has no character arc, but like but it's not sloppy writing. It's it's like it, the character is written to be the kind of character who is incapable of learning lessons. Right. Uh, he's only capable of looking at what's five inches in front of his face, trying to take what he can from it and like get out of there with like whatever he can escape with. Hence the perfect player character. Sure. Uh, I think he'd be the, he's like the worst guy at the table. Basically. I mean, in the first, in the first bit where he gets, he gets captured, he, uh, he gets this uh, parasite put in him and he's getting sent on this quest and his response is, well, I need supplies. Like you need to supply me with, you know, he's, he's like the, he's like the player trying to argue with the DM or trying to like (laughs) weasel things out of the DM. He's Um, totally the one who's like also splitting the party to do his little solo adventures. Yeah. And then is trying to steal from Uh, your part, your other characters. That's the other players. And then when the other players catch them, he's like, okay, I stab him. Right. I'm playing a <laughs> yeah. thief. I have, why, why, I have the black stab skill. I have to use it. I'm right? chaotic neutral. Yeah. I have to do these things. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think he's neutral evil. No, yeah, but I'm saying the player would be saying I'm chaotic neutral. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the chaotic neutral. No, but yes, uh, I think he is neutral evil. Certainly. The, the uh, classic 16 year We've talked about Jack of Shadows before. I think Jack of Shadows definitely influenced, but Jack of Shadows, I think, is more lawful evil. He's trying to create some kind of finer world in mm-hmm. his own mind. And, and Kugel's just purely in it for himself, right? The one thing that they both have in common is that they both have a disproportionate sense of self and that anything that impinges on that sense of self is worthy of great revenge. <laughs> yeah. The merest slight. The merest slight. So, <laughs> again, maybe a car- maybe a hero or anti-hero for our times. I say nothing more. <laughs> yeah, and they really are. Um, and him and Ayukona, the laughing the laughing magician, are really kind of kind of perfectly suited to be at odds with each other because also, I, I forget um, who tells him this. Oh, uh, Voinod, I think, is the one who tells him that Ayukono's greatest weakness is his pride, and if you uh, hurt that, that's like the best way of hurting him. And like that's completely true with Kugel as well. That was uh, Zeredis. Oh, Zeredis said uh, that. Zeredis. Yes. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Unfortunately, before I before I record each of these episodes, I I go through and I reread all of my highlighted text and I take all of these notes on my phone. My phone has died and we're charging it right now and it won't charge. So I think that my phone is actually just dead, dead, which is really unfortunate. Right. But that also means I'm rolling without any notes today. Right. Well, <laughs> As I said, the curse of technology. You maybe check under your shirt and see if there's anything attached to your liver there. Exactly. <laughs> right. yeah. So, so um, anything else that jumped out at you, David, in terms of re- in your reread of the stories? Yeah, th- I mean, there's there's a lot of things. Uh, there's a for being like I said before, for being such a so light on page count. There's so much that's going mm-hmm. on. Um, there's uh well there are the lenses of the overworld right so this demon like cracks through the earth and sends its like eye stalks out to like see what's above and then i like some magicians or something like basically shut the door on mm-hmm. it and the eye stalks fall off 
and these lenses become the eyes of the overworld and and their thing is this thing is is from underground it's from you know hell or whatever so its eyes were used to see the world above so now that the eyes are stuck in this world they still see the world above so they so people put them in their eyes and they see um uh like like the people in uh cuts uh what was the name of the village smold and grads um they uh there's a class of people that are these sort of fat loathsome smelly uh just unkempt people but they've got these eyes in and they see everything through uh essentially rose colored glasses right that's the analogy that jack vance i think is is riffing on um where everything is very elaborate and high-end the food that they eat isn't just gruel and like bland uh preserved fish like smoked fish or whatever they're they're sitting at banquets their hovel is like not a hovel their hovel is like this lush uh you know uh, like yeah palace thing their clothes aren't rags so so whoever is wearing these eyes sees like the next elevated step um in reality which i think is just awesome um so cool. And then you really, you, there is where you really get the, the sense of what a, what a terrible person, uh, Kugel is where he basically robs a guy 30 years of toil, then jumps his place in line to inherit these eyes so that he can get it back and, and, uh, and get rid of this, uh, this parasite. Um, so I mean that's just that's just cool stuff right there. Yeah, and that's um, also another running theme as well because there's also that 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 fella he meets along the beach who has spent like the, his entire lifetime combing, yeah. like sifting through the sand on the beach trying to find not just not just his lifetime, his grandfather's lifetime, his father's lifetime, generations his lifetime. of his family have been sifting through these sands trying to find this ancestral amulet of theirs and then kugel comes along and he's like oh is it this one and just like picks it up and walks off with it <laughs> yeah and and uh that thing's awesome too that bracelet with these like gems on it and whenever he pushes on them there's like these moans and wails and he doesn't know what they do but later he finds out that they essentially summon demons right mm-hmm. They're, like um, demons trapped in them because always like moaning yeah. and wailing yeah so like when he's when he's like sort of fiddling and, and poking these these like uh carbuncles carbuncles yeah the carbuncles on the bracelet uh he's sort of poking and prodding at these things that you really shouldn't be poking and prodding at um and uh uh, to be honest uh, from what i remembered in my quick read is i sort of imagined um these beings as not necessarily being demons uh which of course when you reread it they actually describe them as being demons but um as almost like uh, the souls of uh, how Slay's ancestors are like, are like sort of in here and able to be summoned because whenever uh, Kugel arrives at the palace, there's um, this line of these portraits, right? And for some reason, uh, uh, not portraits, um, statues, like busts uh, of the, the descendants of the house of Slay, which was the ruling class before he lost the, uh, the ruling family before he lost the bracelet. Um, so I, I, for some reason, I always imagined that these things were almost like ancestral, like, uh, kind of beings that, uh, Slay later, uh, summons, uh, the old man that he takes the bracelet from essentially, mm-hmm. uh, he gets it back and he, he summons these, these creatures. And, um, 
I always thought that was pretty cool. I don't know why I thought about it that way, but that's just sort of one of those things that like you misread and you sort of project an idea that you have onto a book. Sure, um, sure. But, and one uh, of the things that cracks uh, me up about it too is when he completely doesn't understand how it works but he's trying to impress people with this great magical power he has. <laughs> so he just keeps pressing the buttons because when they do, they make moans. And he's like, look at what a powerful wizard I am. And he presses it. There's like, oh, <laughs> you're like, oh. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of Kugel messing with pretty much any sort of trinket he comes across. Uh, like, I mean, there's, there's blue concentrate, right? <laughs> like, powerful what, stuff. What is, how, like everybody's freaked out by it. We does don't it actually really know do anything? I don't think yeah, it does. Like, I think it just covers it ever, them in blue. Like, yeah. I mean, didn't it, it, I'm trying to remember, did it hit anybody in the book or did everybody just sort of like see this blue stuff come out and they're like, Nope, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I'm not, I'm not sure actually either, but either way, it, it's a great example though of like, if you give your, and like, I guess we can kind of start transitioning over to the gaming side of this. You know, if you, as a uh, game master, you know, give your characters, your, your players, the opportunity to be really creative with items that you give them. And like, if you give them a, a rod that just explodes with like blue concentrate, your characters can have fun with that. Um, sure. Yeah, like not every, sure. like, and that's one of the things I love about Dungeon Crawl Classics is it's like, they say like, don't make any, don't, don't just have, give them a plus one sword or there is no, like, I'll go buy a bag of holding from the magic shop. You know, everything is very, very unique. And all of the magic uh -huh. items in this book are great examples of just very unique items. Yeah. Um, real quick before we get into items, yeah. uh, uh, something that I, I forgot to mention, I kind of went on a tangent mm -hmm. about um, about uh, Slay, Old Man uh, Slay in particular. And um, another thing that I feel Jack Vance was sort of riffing on, like, well, you've got the lenses, which are, you know, see the world through rose-colored colored glasses. Mm. After Slay banishes them, from the palace, he basically says, you know, I'm going to get to work, but first I'm going to rebuild my palace, like, because it's in disrepair and there's a school running around. Uh, so I'm going to deal with it. And he goes into the house and Kugel sees, uh, like lights and flashes and stuff. So obviously he's using magic, right. Mm -hmm. Um, to repair this palace, but, uh, his magic is clearly based around the bracelet because he couldn't take back his ancestral home, uh, without it. And I, I feel that that's a pretty uh, big nod towards um, like uh, King Solomon stuff using the demons to build uh, his mm. temple. Like he enslaves these these uh, these demons and he puts them in this brass vessel and he seals it with the seal of Solomon. And then he's sort of able to uh, he uses them to to build this uh, palace essentially. So there's something else that I kind of feel that maybe Vance was jabbing on, but. Um, Back to back to yeah. the items. No, that, actually, that's very yeah. cool. Yeah, speaking of jabs, though, you made me think of something. I wonder if the whole eyes of the overworld concept of them, you know, living in filth and seeing this sort of like everything as gorgeous with sort of a thinly veiled sort of jab at sort of consumerism mm -hmm. and advertising. And, you know, it's very applicable. In the 1960s, very, yeah, it could, it could have been because at that point, that's when it's been, a, I feel it may have been around long enough. I mean, I was born in 83, so I wasn't there. But um, I feel that it was... Uh, uh, yeah, maybe that kind of social commentary could have been coming up where like television is more prevalent, uh, more people have them in their homes. And here's this guy who's like writing and yeah, maybe. And that's one thing that's kind of funny to me about, you know, there's, there's kind of a group of people who are being, who have, have, have had a very kind of reactionary response to 
appendix in and, and pulp literature in general who like to act as though contemporary fiction is all allegory and that we can when we look back at the the, the grand old days of of pulp fiction th- there there was no messages in this stuff they were just fun stories and it's like i i think that's i think that's a little preposterous personally because like i i all of these authors were writing things while also exploring allegories for other things and like this isn't something that's new to to literature of the past 10 20 years 400 years <laughs> right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, also actually I'm interested, uh, David, cause, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of stuff, it's so visual, this book and you as a visual artist, what is some of your response to this, yeah, to yeah. this book in, in that sense? Does it inspire? Well, uh, uh, like, um, I, I think like we mentioned before, um, Vance has a way of writing where he gives you just enough to form a picture in your head and everybody's like, if you look at dying earth artwork, it is all mm-hmm. over the place. Um, everybody's got their own take on it. Uh, He gives you just enough to, to create the image in your head, but it's definitely unique to you. Um, But it, it also doesn't lack in, it also doesn't lack anything like, like he gives you enough, but the stuff that he gives you is very rich. Uh, It's like when, when, when he joins up with the pilgrims and they're going across the great desert and he, and they end up meeting up with that, that stable of animals where every single one of them is unique. And he just kind of gives you like a few words to describe a couple of them. And of course, like it's Jack Vance. So his word selection is pretty masterful and hilarious and interesting. Um, But he doesn't go into great detail about like they stand 16 feet tall and they've got, you know, red, red tip, black fur. Like it it doesn't go into that kind of level of detail. He just kind of gives you a few words and moves on and allows, allows the reader to kind of fill in the empty spots. Yeah. You kind of imagine this like parade of mismatched um, again, like uh, uh, Looney Tune, right? Like this is this is straight up like screwball Looney Tune creatures, and they're they're awesome. And I love those um, I love those those priests. The uh, gil- what is it like gilf gilf gilfajites gilf I forget. Um, but they're like these tightrope walking, yes, <laughs> uh, evangelical. <laughs> and their whole thing is that they uh, they believe like what is it like? There's dead people dust like all the all the dead people that have died like every inch of the earth is literally covered with dead people and they don't want to dead things they don't want to touch it so they like have to continually drive these posts into the ground or like they've got uh, like they don't really explain how they get around it um i think when they're just hanging out like in a place like when they meet them at the inn they must have like this sort of grid of of uh tight ropes uh like hammered into the ground so they could get around because when they pilgrimage they have to wear these special shoes which i imagine being these like platform like orthopedic kind of looking things like they don't i don't imagine them being super comfortable um but yeah yeah stilt walkers stilt walkers Uh, maybe but it's what a weird thing and one of the things that we talked about in the yeah and one of the things we talked about in the dying earth episode and that it's worth kind of bringing up again for this one is one of my favorite things about this world that he, that Jack Vance has created is that the cultures from village to village are so different. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's one thing that in, in uh, the creation of a game world or just kind of the creation of your own game world, when you're just kind of 
when you're kind of creating the world for your characters to explore, if you're a game master, I think it's really important to put a lot of effort into making every single village and every single place they encounter really unique. Like give them a couple of really interesting hooks. I completely agree. And uh, one thing that I've found recently, and it's it's not um, DCC related, but uh, the Dungeon World system, uh, my friend Brandon is really into. And there's mm-hmm. a supplement on it where it like, it, you create it's a quick way to create a village or a kingdom or whatever and it's a cooperative thing with your players and i find it gets them more invested so i've been incorporating mm. some of that in with dcc stuff if i have to if i'm not running a module um and i need them to have a town or whatever like i've found that that made me much more open to asking my players like what's here like what do you find and then working with them um, and it's sort of a quick way to create that richness that you're talking about with fans where like, um, everything is unique and, uh, yeah. everything sort of has its own flavor. Uh, so if you're, if you're running a game and you're sort of in a pinch, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the, uh, book itself. I don't think it's actually in the dungeon world core book, but, um, it's a, it's a really well, good, if, if you remember it later, uh, we can include it in our show notes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I'll find it. It's, 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 it's good though. We do a little gaming. We do a little, uh, gaming resources thing in the show notes. So, um, do you generally, um, so you've mentioned running, do you, uh, are sort of equal balance between being a player and, and a judge or do um, you, um, lean more to one or the other i'll be honest um until i started running dcc about a year ago i had never really run games um i'm still really Mm -hmm. rough around the edges Uh, i'm not very good i get stumped pretty easily but uh, i'm lucky enough that i've got players that are interested in sticking with me and going through it um my first dcc thing i tried to do um i tried to make it a little too high fantasy i feel and try to tell like a larger overarching story, but you kind of lose like the lethality of DCC if you, cause you want the characters to live and you want to be able to finish your story. But you know, with DCC, uh, it's got the old school mortality, right? Like you, right. you're going to sure, die at sure. some point you're going to die. Like one out of a hundred PCs may, might make it to a level worth retiring them at. Um, which DCC would be like what for you guys, like five or something, five or six, yeah, maybe even four. <laughs> four yeah, maybe. Um, sure. Especially but, if they've been uh, spell burned all the way down. But, yeah. si- but since I started running DCC, I, I've been uh, doing more modules. And the best thing for me to do is just start rolling in front of my players and, and, and letting the dice fall as they may. So as far as me running games, I'm pretty, I'm pretty raw, more player and uh, less DM. But that's starting to change. Do you think of anything here that in the dying earth that sort of is in your wheelhouse in terms of like creating creatures and monsters and stuff? That- oh man, yeah, there's so there's so much, um, and there's not a lot that's fully described in this novel in particular. I think the first dying earth had a little bit more, uh, maybe on some of them. Like like I love Diodans. I think they're yeah, awesome. Diodans and pilgrims, <laughs> yeah, and herbs, um, and the the twick the twick men in the first mm-hmm. one, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, uh, the Gru, um, the little like <laughs> rat things or whatever. Um, yeah, really cool. I mean, make, uh, the Lucomorphs. Yeah, I, I yeah, they're they're cool too. Um, the rat people in in the cave at, at the end of uh, this book in particular are pretty sweet. Um, and and what, then we have some things that are using kind of traditional names, like we have a ghost, we have ghouls. 
Um, right. But even like they don't, they don't, I mean, I guess the ghost was a pretty traditional ghost, but even like the ghoul didn't feel like a traditional ghoul to me. Um, the ghoul to me in this felt more like, like when I, I mean, when I think ghoul, um, I think two things. I think like classic D and D ghoul. And I think, uh, I also think of world of darkness where you're ghouled, you're not fully turned or whatever. Right. So mm. I don't think of them as like, as necessarily the power level of whatever they were facing in this book. In this book, whatever that thing was, was pretty terrifying. It came out in the dark, it thrashed whatever it found. Like everybody was scared of it. Uh, the way Google like reacts when he sees it. I mean, he's like frozen. It's, it's like a powerful Lovecraftian ghoul. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because, because like yeah, the, the Lovecraft ghouls are kind of all over the place, right? But the but this thing is definitely like it's definitely causing a, an issue. It's it's eating people every night or whatever, and it's it's out there and it's a, it's a big problem. Sure. Um, I think uh, I think uh, Magnets is pretty awesome too. Uh, they, you definitely yeah, think of like the Kraken. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, coming out of the water like a uh, Clash of the Titans kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know that he could essentially also be uh, like a dying Earth dragon. Um, you mm-hmm. know, you basically just get that little bit of him in this book where he, he gets up and he swats around and then he walks towards the town. And by that point, Kugel is is uh, running into the mountains and in, in terror <laughs> um, and leaves the whole town to his. Hideous yeah. watery death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I feel like we can't talk about Jack Vance and the dying earth world at all and not talk about Vancey and magic. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about Vancey and magic in, in, in co- comparing Dungeons and Dragons, Vancey and magic and the games that have come from it uh, to the actual Vance novels, um, you know, in the eyes of the overworld, there's a section where Kugel is trying to memorize a spell and he's having a really hard time because he doesn't usually do this stuff. But he was saying, but it says in the text that like, you know, the greatest wizards can keep three or four in their mind at a time. And the idea that the greatest wizards can keep f- up to four spells in their mind at a time is pretty, pretty low powered for um, when you compare that to Dungeons and Dragons. Because it get, depends like, on how powerful the spell is. Yeah, but you're, you're yeah. right. You're right. Sure. Well, but right. you get like a 12th level magic user. Right. And they like, have like 60, 16, 20, 30 spells. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, the, the scope is very different. Yeah. Well, I think DCC plays that pretty well because they keep the number of spells uh, down relatively low, but the possible outcomes of all the spells are the variable. And so that's that's rather than being sort of more straightforwardly mechanical in classical Dungeons and Dragons, where you cast a spell and it does this, mm-hmm. right? In DCC, it does anything from this to this in dcc sure what i also think is interesting is how when you compare vance vance and magic in in the text to what we consider vance and magic now is the wizards when they are parted with their spellbook are useless oh yeah yeah like um, Zeratis doesn't have his his Librams or his tombs or yeah, whatever. Zeratis can't do anything stuck down there with a bunch of rat people. If he has his um, tombs, he can do insanely powerful stuff. But without it, he is, he literally can't do anything. Yeah, uh, and some of the names of the spells too are so great. Like Lugweiler's Dismal Itch, the Gyrator, <laughs> um, and then the one that that Kugel uses to escape the the rat caves inside out and over, where it basically just. Uh, heaves the the tunnel system that these rats have made like above ground mm-hmm. and it manages to crush everybody 
Uh, or no, it doesn't crush everybody. It expels the rats out along with like that other tribe of whatever it was that they were fighting. <laughs> we like, never like, really knew exactly live, what they the were. The people that live lower than the rats. Uh-huh. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, the mountain just basically turns inside uh-huh. out and spits everything out into right. the woods. This is also yeah. the book with the uh, entombment, uh, right? Where all the people are entombed. Yeah, the like, for, forlorn incitement. Forlorn incitement. Right? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> and that, yeah, that, that spell is, that's crazy. And, then, and yeah, I love when, how when, when, he, he when Kugel tries to cast it, it he, he gets one of the syllables wrong or something. And because of that, he ends up freeing all of them instead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he, and they've he, been he, in there like, for like thousands of years and they just pop up like, what, what, where are we? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the great, and we're gonna, I'm going to totally ruin the end here. The great final moment is he wants to get his revenge on Ayukono and send him off to where he was. So he casts that same spell that Ayukono casts on him, but he also gets a syllable wrong again <laughs> and instead ends up sending himself right back to where he started. And the first yeah. time I read this book, I actually was on the subway and laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was definitely, as we say, that was that perfect, you know, Daffy Duck moment where he yeah. just, just did it to himself. And that's one thing that yeah. I love about uh, Dungeon Call Classics and some other kind of uh, OSR uh, takes, con- contemporary OSR takes uh, on spellcasting is allowing for like spell misfires and spells to go wrong because that is such a foundational part of Appendix N literature that really sure. doesn't exist in Dungeons and Dragons right. in I any edition. Magic is dangerous, right, right? right? Like that's sort of the thing. Mm-hmm. I think in Dungeons and Dragons in that sense – AD and D in that sense shows its sort of war game roots. Like this is how much am- this is how many shots you have. This mm-hmm. is your big cannon. This is your such and such device. And you know DCC and some of the more recent things like what Gavin Norman's been doing yes. with um, theorems and thaumaturgy and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Are, or like say, maze rats, right? With bringing her... the danger, uh, wonders and wickedness. I think Paolo Greco, oh, yes. right? Um, and obviously Vam from uh, yes. James Ratchet too. <laughs> so uh, bring that sense of danger the sense of uncertainty mm-hmm. mysteriousness that maybe was missing from sort of the more codified magic from first edition onwards yeah and one thing that's interesting about fancy and magic my or at least my take on it is you know you read like the harold shea stories and there's a whole range of things that might happen, which is very much in line with like Dungeon Crawl Classics. With Vancey and Magic, it seems like if you do it right, you're going to get a very um, you're you're going to get a very kind of expected result. It doesn't seem like there's a big wild array of things that might happen, but it's either going to work or it's going to totally backfire on you. Right. I think they expressly address that in. I mean, it's a very small passing sense in the Dying Earth that these are actually, of course, actual lost mathematical formulas yeah that people just don't understand yeah. them to be you know you know as that as such now to think of them in terms of spells but this is actually you know you know a series of instructions essentially sure that should if properly right. done will produce this result well it's like when we read yeah that's oh, something that the first book that that's something that the first book um the collection of stories i think covers more in this one uh doesn't really touch upon as much of the science uh as the first dying earth story. Oh, absolutely. So if someone was to just jump on this, I don't know if they'd necessarily see that. Um, yeah, you do so see yeah, that remote, more right. in the later books, but this is the right. one where you have like the least amount of that. Right. And but it makes sense because Kugel yeah. is not a, a magician. He, he happens to be in that universe, but he's just rogue. And so he's not, he's not operating at a level of a person who's really trying to gain knowledge ever. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to sort of master his local environment and, you know, soothe his pride and do all the other things that, you know, a neutral evil, Jerk ass does. <laughs> sure. So. And it makes me think about um, 
have you read Jack of Shadows? I have not. Okay. We just, uh, we, we read that one recently and there's kind of a really neat part where in Jack of Shadows, he's living on the, the dark side of the earth where uh, everything is magic, but then there's the, the light side of the earth where everything is technology. And he's talking to kind of this, like uh, this kind of angel type type creature. And he's saying, you know, we know at the center of the earth, there are like these fire demons that are that are operating down there. But on the light side of the earth, they're telling us there's this great these great machinery down there that's like operating the earth. And they basically the angel saying like, well, those are both true and they're both wrong. You both are just seeing things through your own through the, through the way in which you see them and kind of taking that and then applying that to the eyes of the overworld and the dying earth world in general, like this is an ancient, ancient, ancient world. And who knows how much of this magic we're encountering really is magic. Maybe those demon mm-hmm. eye stalks that came up from the earth were something else completely. And they just kind of pulled off these like virtual reality lenses that they're now right. exploring with, or um, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, 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 Durway, Durway, yeah. with her like little walking car that has her like the six swan legs. Right. Is that magic or is that some like insanely strange modified swan boat? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, one thing that people sometimes gloss over, both in this fiction right here and in D anD D, is that obviously that there is not necessarily a hard line between science fiction and fantasy, mm-hmm. or um. And maybe there shouldn't be. And in particular, maybe we should say there wasn't a hard wasn't, line between wasn't, science fiction and fantasy. Right. And, you know, These so, days, there tends to be, right? At least from a marketing point of view. Um, and that it's strongly implied that um, world of Greyhawk is a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not our world. And this is our world, unimaginable millions of years in the future. Yeah. To the point where it's not recognizable, other than in human nature. Mm-hmm. Like you know, people's human nature is still there, but um, so. It's come so far around that it becomes fantasy. Yeah. But um, so it could be literally, you could even almost do our world, then Gamma world, and then DCC could be in the far future and not in our far past. Absolutely. And one of the things that's neat about Dying Earth and Eyes of the Overworld is there's this sense that almost all of the monsters were once human, that Deodons and Pelgrains, they they were all people at one point. And if you want to apply that to kind of fantasy fiction now, maybe elves and dwarves and halflings and orcs they're all people too like people who either went through different courses of um of evolution or they were experimented upon or whatever but now that's so far in the past that we just see them as unique unique creatures that really aren't right part of the same right and then that allows for you know your I mean, without getting too, you know, plausible, but you know, that's Gary Guy likes to like to make things seem semi plausible. That's how you can have your half orcs and your half elves and yeah. sort of semi breed together and stuff like that. It, it, again, it wears it kind of lightly because it's so far in the future. It's not the sense of like, oh, um, you know, we remember the immediate past and it, it was so, so much better in the immediate past because people seem to be having fun at this end of this world. I mean, it's a harsh, terrible world, like you mentioned at the beginning, but people are still having fun. They're playing with language they have this i guess as you said this sort of almost over courteous way of dealing with each other even as even as they're doing really horrible things to each other um so i don't necessarily know if that's them having fun as much as jack fans have (laughs) you're right that's fair fair. people in this world like there's multiple there's multiple times where people are freaking out like there's the time where their pilgrims are on their thing and the sun pulses yes like it grows like a second and everybody just looks up and they're like here it is it's time uh, it, it mentions a lot, uh, a lot in the book. It it brings up the fact that this this place is on its way mm-hmm. out, and uh, it's more like everybody's just sort of 
there's nothing they can do about it. So they're sort of living in this denial, even though there's this terror that is constantly looming over them. That's well, true. You just made me think of another thing. And maybe again, this is me being too literal, but this was, you know, at the very end of the Cold War, uh, not the heart of the Cold Warrior. So that sort of sense of a potential overlying doom and just hang, having to deal with it on a day-to-day basis, right? Mm-hmm. You know, any moment the world can end in nuclear fire. That's true. And there you go. And right. that's probably a good note for us to start wrapping up on. Uh, David, do you have any kind of uh, final thoughts you would like to share before we wrap up? Uh, actually, I do have something. Um, there's a part in the book where uh, after Kugel um, takes Stairway and they um, are leaving uh, the palace after Slay takes it over and they come across the bandits, mm-hmm. right? And they uh, there's like this really shallow stream and they have to, uh, the, the bandits tell them that this area is very dangerous and there's strong magics and they need to be guided through this area to reach safety. And they'll the only way that they'll do it is if Kugel gives them Dareway, like essentially a seller in his slavery. Um, so they get in a boat and they cross a river and the river is like knee deep. It's not, it's more of like a, a creek. It's just like this thing. And the bandits like, oh, there's these crystal like snakes that live in there and they'll eat you. Um, you just can't see them because they're in the water. Um, and then they go uh, across and then they, they go through this really elaborate way of walking basically 50 paces away, but it takes them 10 minutes or something to walk. Like it's this really elaborate uh, way out. <clears throat> and then, uh, and then the bandit takes Dareway and says, you have to walk to the end of this clearing and there are four paths and I'll tell you which path to get, but I'm making sure I'm getting my payment before I let you go. Um, do you guys think that those bandits were just messing with them? Hmm. that is a great question yeah whether whether that's true or not it's still in his own best interest to just assume that it's true just like the people who are telling him don't go south through the mountains because magnets Mm -hmm. the demon is there and he laughs it off but he goes anyways but he (laughs) but he manages to get a deodon to like kind of lead him through and the truth is everybody who goes south the reason they die is those mountains are infested with deodons who are murdering everybody so people everybody does get murdered who goes down that way just not for the reason the people up north think Right, but he didn't know that. Like he chose to go to 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 go to um, uh, Vol. Was it Vol? Yeah, Is that Vol. the city with mm-hmm. with Meg? Yeah, he, he chose to make his way down south, and and the Diodan attacked him shortly after he left. Yeah. Like he was going that way anyway, mm-hmm. and he just like Google lucked his way into having a, a captive that would prevent him from being murdered in the hills yep. <laughs> uh, but, but this is but this is an instance where like he he arrives and these people uh, I think sort of feed him a line. And then he just, he swallows it up. He just eats it up. And then there you really see the, like his messed up uh, sort of sociopathic way of thinking is when he sort of justifies slaving uh, Dareway to these bandits where he's like, oh, she'll, you know, she'll be better off. It's less dangerous. She'll come to, to appreciate like what I did mm-hmm. essentially. Oh, absolutely. Um, Every yeah. single choice he makes is completely dreadful right. and abysmal. And I, I think you're right. He may be getting messed up because he's as, as clever as he is. He's also getting constantly getting hoodwinked, you know, in different ways, you know, and then when he discovers it, he gets outraged. Yeah. So right. yeah, it's a good one. Cool. Yeah. So we should wrap up now. Right. Um, thank you so much, David, for joining us. I yeah. really, it's been great having you on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let's do it again. Okay, so uh, coming up next, we'll be doing A Merit's Burn Witch Burn, 
And then after that, we'll be doing Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People. All right, everybody. Thank you. All right. See you in a stack. Read on. See ya. The library is closed.